could have. Um, yeah, apologies. I'm a little bit unwell. I feel like my brain is like two steps behind my body or the other way around. I don't know. So bear with me. Um, but yeah, so I'm feeling, um, you might have seen my Facebook post, but feeling really sentimental about this kind of time of, um, yeah, being in Wellington before um, I head off. Um, yeah, so for those that don't know, um, my husband James is currently over in Middle East and I'll be joining him in April. Um, and we will be there indefinitely at this stage. Um, but yeah, we'll kind of spend some time there and kind of figure out, um, yeah, I guess God's plan for us in that space. So we could be there short term or we could be there um, a couple of years or, or long term. So yeah, just kind of leaving it up to God. But it does mean that I'm leaving um, Wellington and probably the saddest part of all of that is, is leaving this community because I've been so blessed um, to be a part of such an awesome community. Um, yeah, so anyway, that's kind of the, um, the story there. Um, but yeah, so um, as we haven't started the um, this new seasonal guide, I've kind of had a bit of free reign of what to talk about tonight. So <laughs> um, I could have had, um, there was a bunch of things that were coming to mind, but I ended up when I was trying to figure out, you know, what is what is God saying? And um, James had some really kind of cool questions to kind of figure out what is, um, what could be a way to do this. But I just ended up in this kind of existential, like, what is, what even is church? What even is a sermon? Why would people come and listen? Which I kind of feel like it just happens for me every, you know, um, year or two. And I think it's good because I always end up back in the same place, but it's a good process to um, remind me of like the importance and the value of, of coming together as a community, of, of sharing the things that we learn um, with each other. Um, but anyway, so I kind of actually started a little bit at like um, kind of the 101 um, of faith and kind of um, ventured out from there. But where I kind of got to was this, the big question of what does it look like to, for us to pursue Jesus in 2019? What does it look like for us to do this together in community? What does it look like to have an apprenticeship to Jesus, to follow the way of Jesus in 2019? Yeah, so I kind of um, went a little bit back to the 101, so bear with me. I'm just going to go through um, some of these basics that some of you may have heard many times, for others it might be um, really cool new information, um, and we'll go from there. So... What is the church? What is the gospel? And what is the kingdom of God? So the church, um, you may have heard the word ecclesia or ecclesia. Um, funnily enough, the first time I ever came to New Zealand, I came with a band, a heavy metal band that was touring that was called Ecclesia. Um, they were not very good. <laughs> but um, Sam knows he was there. Um, yeah, I met Sam in the, on that Wellington part of the tour that... 10 years ago, so, um, but yeah, anyway, Ecclesia, so the Greek, um, it's in Greek, and it means the called out ones, so the church is essentially a group of people who are the called out ones, or who've answered that call, we are called by God for a purpose, but what is that purpose, the gospel, the good news, the hope of the resurrection, so we are called out by God, for, to pursue a purpose, and our purpose is to pursue the gospel, and the gospel is to pursue the kingdom of God. So Jesus talked about the kingdom of God a lot, 
almost every time he talked about the gospel or the good news, he talked about the kingdom of God. He mentioned it um, over like 120 times um, in the gospels. So it was, you know, it was a pretty common thing. It's something that he was championing in his time on earth. So he was kind of, in different ways, Jesus explained the kingdom of God. He did it a lot through parables. And my favorite one, which I'll share with you, is Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Pursuing something so precious that when you find it, you give up everything for it. That is the kingdom of God. We kind of get from um, the whole of scripture that the kingdom of God is peace, it's joy, it's justice, it's righteousness, it's hope for the poor and the oppressed. Um, There's a really great description of the kingdom of God that I'll read here for you. If I can see my page. The kingdom of God isn't about escaping the evil world when we die. But it's the announcement of God's eternity moving into the present work and carrying on in the life to come. We as the church, as the called out ones, join in his worldwide restoration project. The called out ones are committed to advancing the good news of God. Oh, sorry, the good news of God's kingdom into the world. So Jesus uses this language of the kingdom because that's what they were in in those times. They were under a kingdom, under this empire. So for Jesus to use this term kingdom or to use this term king, he was essentially committing treason to the empire. And it was the thing that actually ended up getting him killed. He was so countercultural in his pursuit of um, reclaiming this idea of what a just world could look like, what a peaceful world could look like, a joyful world, that his narrative of this kingdom of God was was so countercultural that, yeah, it was the thing that um, got him on a cross. Yeah, so it was a big deal. <laughs> so God is calling us out, his people, the called out ones, to spread the good news of the resurrection and to join with him in this restoration project of bringing the kingdom to earth. Awesome. So now we find ourselves in a part of this restoration project. So we're kind of landed in where we are in life in this restoration project. So whether or not we know it, whether or not others know it, everyone at some level, is searching for the kingdom of God. But everyone is pursuing their own sense of utopia. But when we create our own utopia, we can never quite find it. When we find it, it crumbles so easily under pressure. Or one person's utopia will create another person's hell. We just are in this constant pursuit of utopia. You see it in, um, you know... Islamic extremists, they're pursuing this idea of utopia. You see it in Hollywood, pursuing this idea of utopia. But what humankind is pursuing, only the kingdom of God can truly satisfy. So we've got this 
we find ourselves in this restoration project and we've kind of got all this kind of work in front of us that God has invited us into to bring about this kingdom of God. But when we kind of stop and look at the world from a bird's eye view, it just feels overwhelming and um, makes, I know, makes me anxious, it makes me sad, it makes me angry, just a sense of injustice of like, look at what's happening around the world. Literally last night I was um, watching the news with um, my flatmates and we watched this news piece and it was just like heart-wrenching. And at the end of it they said, and this is the 39th mass shooting in the States in 2019. I'm like, we're six weeks in, guys. We are six weeks into 2019. And there's been 39 mass shootings in the States. Like, what? Like, it's so easy. Everywhere around us, we know that just life is not as it ought to be. It is not what God designed. It's so easy to see that everywhere. We see it um, in front of us all the time. Yeah, that's intense. Um, so for those that don't know, I work for Zeal. Um, we're a youth work agency who does uh, youth work through creativity. And um, as a youth worker, it's so it can be so easy to get caught up in babysitting. Sometimes like I'll go two weeks and kind of stop and reflect and be like, I haven't like intentionally aimed to engage in like this restoration project. I've just blindly kind of sat there and you just end up babysitting. But I have these six things that I often try and engage with to remind myself to kind of like, hey, there's, there's work that, that God's called me to and it's more than just providing a space, but it's um, relationships. So there's kind of six things that I reckon, kind of six ways to engage with God's restoration project. So it's kind of what I use um, that I'll share with you. So one is that we reconcile young people to themselves. We reconcile young people to their peers or community. We reconcile young people to their whānau. We reconcile young people to their wider tribe or nation. We reconcile young people to the earth. We reconcile young people ultimately to God. So these are six things that I often remind myself when I kind of come into my youth work, but it's transferable to any parts of our life. You know, just take out the word young. <laughs> we reconcile people. Um, yeah, so we, for me, I find myself in this um, restoration project that God, God has laid out before me. And those are kind of my six indicators to remind me of, like, the type of work that I can kind of enter into uh, for God, but also for myself. But in those six things, like, these aren't new ideas. We, you know, we talk about these all the time. Like, we know that there is this crisis of being, this crisis of, you know, mental health distress and identity. That Yeah, it's not a new idea. And we know that for, you know, reconciling to the earth, we know that there is work that needs to be done. And thanks, Rose, for doing some, wherever you are. <laughs> um, you know, there's kind of environmental issues coming out of the wazoo. And even just this connection or disconnection to... We know that there is reconciliation that needs to happen um, with the earth, with the whenua. And we know that with the breakdown of um, family in this last 50 to 100 years has meant that we're left with um, this disconnected sense of family, of, um, of tribe, of iwi. 
So we know that these are issues and we, we talk about them all the time and we engage in this work and it's awesome. Um, so yeah, those are kind of six things that I reckon are, um, yeah, I guess like practically ways that we can engage with this restoration project that God has laid out for us. But I can't kind of go into detail into all six of those and kind of what Jesus has to say and yada yada yada. So I'm just going to pick one. So I've picked um, the one that I feel like God has kind of been doing a big um, work in my life over the last year. And that's um, this, the last one, which is we reconcile people ultimately to God. We reconcile this world to God. So what does it look like for us to engage in this rest, restoration project? Um, and how do we um, engage in this work of reconciling people to God, reconciling this world to God? So, we live in a current climate that has declared that God is dead. This Western culture we've found ourselves in is the first civilization to be built around the idea of doubt instead of belief. This culture is set up to make us doubt. So how do we live in a world when everybody is wrecked by doubt? How can we offer stability in an age of anxiety? When we live in this information-saturated world, how does our narratives, our narrative speak louder than the thousand narratives we see every day through advertising, through the subtle kind of worldviews of the TV shows that we watch or through news headlines? There's all these narratives that get thrown at us all the time and we're trying to engage the world in this narrative of welcoming into the kingdom of God, welcoming into, into this sense of peace and love and justice. How do we usher in this, um, this kingdom that Jesus talks about all the time when there are just so many narratives um, that are louder than we can be? Yeah, how can we say, you need to stop searching for utopia because we've got it. It's called the kingdom of God. But how can we say that and be louder than those other narratives? It's a good question. Um, yeah, so in the midst of this chaos... How can we be countercultural like Jesus was when he talked about the kingdom of God? How can we be counterculturally louder and be a non-anxious presence and be relentlessly hopeful about the world when the world has other narratives? So kind of the, um, this main scripture for today, if you have a Bible, feel free to turn there because I'll come back to it as well. Um, 2 Timothy 1.7 for God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. So to get a bit bonny, <laughs> um, tell you a bit of my own um, story that um, last year that landed me to come to a place of repentance. So I was at Zeal and, um, you know, working away at a desk and I got a text from myself. And the text was from James and it just said, Scott Morrison won. He's now the Prime Minister of Australia. And I pushed myself back off the desk and kind of like in shock and anger and frustration just sitting in this kind of anger I didn't know whether I should cry or whether I should punch something. I was, I was so angry. It was, I've never been more angry um, than that moment. And it kind of 
forced me to question like, oh my gosh, like I've never felt this way before. I'm so angry at the injustice that I've seen this man commit that I am just like, I'm saddened, deeply saddened that he has become the leader of my home country. Um, when I was on Nauru, he um, visited and kind of came back with this report of like, oh yeah, it's all good. Those guys are really looked after well. And as someone who was there caring so deeply for um, those men, I just, yeah, kind of created this um, distress in me of and distrust and just frustration against this person, against Scott Morrison. And then it was, I can't remember if it was that night or the next night, where it came up again and I was just deeply saddened, I was frustrated, and I was like, Ugh. you know how we just enjoy getting angry at Donald Trump? We kind of enjoy it, let's be honest, let's be honest. Well, I had kind of the same thing um, with Scott Morrison, like I was chatting with all my friends, I had some friends meeting in Australia, and we were just like enjoying, just like, you know, hating on Scott Morrison. And then God so clearly said to me, he was like, hey, you should pray for him. And I was humbled. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was it was a moment. I realized that I had completely entered into dealing with this issue the wrong way. I chose kind of this hateful frustration over what God would deem a good way to deal with the situation. But I realized... I was building my own Christian vision of equality and justice and peace. I would just get angry and I'd like post on social media at like in outrage and found myself even more anxious about all the pain in the world. I would distract myself by working for Jesus but I forgot to work with him. I was pursuing a utopia without Jesus. But what is the kingdom without a king? I realized I wasn't helping to reconcile this world with God or to help people reconcile with God. I was just pursuing an idea of utopia that essentially became an idol. I wasn't speaking louder than the narratives of our culture in an attempt to disarm this anxiety or hopelessness. I was just joining in. Um, Mark Sayers, who's one of the um, people who are on the speakers, he called them speakers on the podcast, the This Culture Moment podcast. Um, he says, we have fallen into a Christian version of outrage and anxiety, and that won't help society. What we really need are followers of Jesus to be a non-anxious presence in the systems of society. To reconcile this world to God, we need to choose the countercultural narrative of internal hope amidst external turmoil. So when I talk about this kind of like non-anxiety or anxiety, I'm talking about this kind of residual um, deep cultural anxiety as opposed to like a personal um, mental distress of anxiety, but kind of like this cultural anxiety that we sit in. So going back to that 2 Timothy verse, um, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and of love and of self and self-discipline. Paul wrote this when he was in prison. He was amidst this turmoil and he has this internal hope. He was facing death, he was chained up, but he still managed to be this kind of relentless um, or provide relentless hopefulness to, um, to the people he's writing to for the kingdom. So I'll read the whole um, section. 
For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer for me for the sake of the good news. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. And he did this not because we deserved it, but because that, that was his plan from the, before the beginning of time. To show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he has made all of his plan to us by appearing, by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Saviour. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. So in the midst of being chained up in prison, he offers this deep internal hope. And that's so inspiring to me. Jesus constantly says to his disciples, do not be afraid. Stop worrying. It's littered through the Bible that we should stop worrying. Yet we do it. We live into this culture of anxiety and worry and, you know, we have to put ourselves first. Um, but, yeah, Jesus or in God throughout the Bible, um, I'll just read a couple of scriptures. So in John 16, he says, I have told you th- these things so you may have peace. In this world, you will, ha- you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. In Matthew 6, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. David writes in the Psalms in 56, he says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In Psalm 94, When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought joy, joy to my soul. And Isaiah, tell everyone who is discouraged, be strong and don't be afraid. God is coming to your rescue. So Paul didn't let um, his internal hope be dictated by his external circumstance. And neither should we. Not only for our own benefit, but when we choose to put our faith in Christ, we offer an alternative to this anxiety-driven society we live in. By Jesus declaring the kingdom of God, the penalty for being countercultural was death. But for us to live into this countercultural narrative, there's not really a whole lot of consequences. So what is stopping us? What is the worst thing that can happen to us when we choose to live an alternative narrative to the life that Silicon Valley are trying so desperately to sell us? <laughs> um, yeah. Silicon Valley basically is set up to figure out how to make money off our addiction to social media. And we can kind of buy into that because it's what we all do. We all have an iPhone, we all have Facebook. We can choose, and not that that in itself is wrong or that in itself is evil, but what narratives are we letting um, into our lives? So practically, what does it look like to be countercultural? to show the way for our brothers and sisters to be reconciled to God? How do we choose this disposition of non-anxiety and relentlessly, and to be relentlessly hopeful? So I've got a couple of um, bits and pieces. Is there any way to check the timing? No? Okay, cool. Um, 
yeah, a couple of practical pieces of, you know, what practically could it look like for us to live into this um, narrative that God is asking us to kind of um, to shout from the rooftops instead of kind of what um, this culture is, is teaching us. So, so one is to limit the narratives that we let in through Hollywood, social media, and the news. And I love, um, I was talking to Hamish before about um, this, and he was saying he actually, you know, deleted the Facebook app off his phone. And he has this app, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to download this as soon as I get home. It's just called Kill Newsfeed. And it just means that, you know, Hamish is, isn't flooded just with news of people, of um, news headlines. I mean, man, that is like, that in itself is countercultural because that it, yeah, it's different to the way that most people choose to live. Take that, Mark Zuckerberg. <coughs> but yeah, so how are we limiting the narratives that we're living in? Sub- subconsciously, this happens. I know for me, it happens to me through TV shows. Like, I'll watch a TV show and then afterwards I'll be like, oh my gosh, I want to live that life. That's great. Like, most of them are like action movies or action TV shows. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to go join the army and go shoot people. But then I like take a moment like, I do not want to do that. But, you know, we, we let these narratives into our life. And if we don't um, kind of notice how they are kind of subconsciously um, changing the way we think, um, yeah, we're in danger of not being a part of that kind of reconciliation um, that God is calling us into. So second one is how are we centering our life around the spiritual disciplines and prayer? Um, I have been, had, was privileged to live down Thorndon End in the cathedral. They have morning prayers every morning. And I was so lucky because it's just like, I don't even have to do my own spiritual disciplines. I'll just join in with this one. And I didn't necessarily notice, I guess, like um, the good that it was doing for me um, for a while. Um, but I've, since I've moved out, so over summer and then um, moved out of that house, I haven't had morning prayers for months. And man, I've realized how much good it was doing for me and how much I'm lacking without it. When I was able to start my day by giving all of my frustrations, my hopes, my dreams over to God, it all of a sudden changed that disposition from being um, anxious about the world to hopeful about how Christ is redeeming the world. It literally changed every part of my day. But it was a spiritual discipline um, that I engaged in, and that was so special. So centering our life around those spiritual disciplines and around the discipline of prayer can have massive um, effects for, um, yeah, I guess being a part of this restoration project um, and helping to reconcile this world to God. Now I have to go and find more spiritual disciplines because I don't have morning prayers anymore, but it's okay. (laughs) I'm just lazy. Cool. Um, Third kind of practical point is um, having close people to us that can help us keep grounded and that we can be accountable to so we need each other on this journey of um, pursuing this kind of relentless um, hope for the world and hope for the kingdom of God so how can we have others who can keep us accountable when we start believing these other narratives that come our way but how can we yeah join together as a community to together kind of um yeah, live into this narrative that's so countercultural that people will notice. 
above all of the other thousand narratives that are out there. People will notice. Cool, and the last one I've got is just finding celebration moments. So how do we create a culture of celebration? We celebrate people, um, celebrate moments of restoration, celebrate moments of um, sobriety, of, of all sorts of addictions. How do we celebrate when we make um, choices that align with this kind of restoration work? Um, celebrate when we do, you know, all some positive things for the environment. Um, that's a part of this restoration work. How do we kind of create these celebration moments so we don't actually miss what God is doing? We don't actually miss how much the kingdom is coming through us together. So yeah, I guess those are just a few examples of um, that kind of come to mind of how we can kind of be shaped by um, the narrative that God wants us to speak as opposed to these um, thousand narratives that are kind of screaming at us every day. So how can we buy into the narrative of hope instead of self-desire? Yeah, so hopefully those are um, some practical ways. But um, if we had time, I was going to get you guys to kind of think over some what are some practical things that you could do. But maybe if you are, are challenged by this, maybe you could go home or even um, in worship kind of think of ways that you can kind of engage with this um, restorative work that God's calling into you and what might need to change, like how are you limiting those narratives or, um, you know, how do you get people around you to help you on this journey to be kind of relentlessly hopeful. Um, yeah, so that wasn't um, really a three-point sermon, more of a rant. Um, but, yeah, it's just something I feel really strongly in my heart of, you know, there is so much hope of the kingdom of God. And I truly believe that if we engage into the, this kind of countercultural narrative of being having this disposition of we are not worried, we have God on our side, we are relentlessly hopeful in a world that is screaming that there is no hope, that that will be work that we can do in reconciling this world to God. People will find God in this hopefulness we bring. But we need to remember to be led by God and to put our trust in the hope that he's given us to reconcile this world back to him. So Lord, may your kingdom come through us.